This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. In creating this podcast, I spend a lot of time getting to know the people whose stories I tell, the victims and the criminals. But I always try to tell the stories of the victims in a real and complete way. And in doing so, by the time I've completed each episode, I feel in some way connected to them. It's like I live with them for a while and get to know them personally. And I hope I convey their stories in a way that is honest and real and honors their lives in some small way. And I'm always surprised at the synchronicities that sometimes occur when I'm working on each episode. I don't spend a lot of time planning release dates for specific episodes, but more than a few have, incidentally, come out on the anniversary of a major event in the life of my subject. It's happened again with this episode. I was researching John Lennon's life and looked at my calendar, realizing that I would be recording this episode on his birthday. As I sometimes feel connected to my subjects, the person who took the life of John Lennon also felt he had a connection to the Beatles, to John Lennon, and also to Holden Caulfield, the protagonist of the novel The Catcher in the Rye. But as we've learned in the first two installments of this series, Fatal Fans, these fans create an unhealthy, all-encompassing obsession with their victims. In this episode, I will share with you how Mark David Chapman, a man who believed he was destined for greatness and never realized this dream, took out his frustrations in life on an artist he had once idolized. This is Chapter 3 in the series, Fatal Fans, John Lennon. John Winston Lennon was born October 9, 1940, in Liverpool, England. His father, Alfred, or Freddie, was an Irishman and a merchant sailor. His mother, Julia, was a petite beauty who was also high-spirited and fun-loving. Most believe that John's unique sense of humor was inherited from his mom. She had married Freddie, most believe, in defiance of her parents. Her husband was away most of the time as a merchant sailor, and then during the war was also called away for duty. He was not present when his son John was born. He was sending money to Julia for a time, but then stopped in 1943. He became a deserter during the war and did not return home to his wife and young son. He came back once when John was five years old. He had planned to emigrate with John to New Zealand. But while John at first said he wanted to live with his father, he cried and ran to his mother instead, refusing to leave with him. He lost contact completely with his father until the 1960s, when John became famous and they reconnected. Julia met another man, John Dykins, and began living with him when John was still a toddler. His sister Mimi, scandalized that Julia was living with the man she was not married to, contacted Liverpool's social services to complain. Under pressure from her sister and the authorities, Julia handed custody of John over to Mimi and her husband George to raise. Julia continued to visit John and pass along her love of music, singing to him and teaching him to play banjo and ukulele. She purchased his first guitar. His aunt Mimi disapproved at first of John's musical ambitions. But as John was also high-spirited and often in trouble at school, being a cut-up and a class clown and neglecting his studies, at least music seemed to keep him occupied and out of trouble. But as Mimi, who ran a strict and religious household, would not allow a record player in her house, John would visit his mother and listen to Elvis records and other rock and roll bands. As a teen, John began playing in the band The Quarrymen, which later would become the Beatles. They played in local venues in and around Liverpool. His mother came to hear the band play at St. Barnabas Hall in 1957. She was very proud and excited for her son and encouraged his musical ambitions. On July 15, 1958, when John was 17 years old, Julia, leaving Mimi's house after a visit, was struck by a drunk driver while walking to the bus stop and killed. John would grieve the loss of his mother all of his life. He would write the songs Julia, Mother, and other songs about his mother and the pain he suffered due to her loss. John would go on to form the band The Beatles with Paul McCartney, George Harrison, and Ringo Starr in 1960. Most of their songs were written by Lennon and McCartney. They would become one of the most famous, if not the most famous, band in the history of music. The enormous popularity of the band, known as Beatlemania, would reach its apex in 1964, when they traveled to America to appear on The Ed Sullivan Show. Their first U.S. television appearance was watched by over 73 million people, or 34% of the American population. 
John had married Cynthia Powell, who he met at the Liverpool College of Art in 1962. Their son Julian, named after John's mother Julia, was born on April 8, 1963. John was not present for his birth, as he was already on the road with the Beatles. John's marriage to Cynthia and his relationship with his son deteriorated due to his responsibilities with the band and his touring schedule. In 1968, after returning from a trip, Cynthia found a woman named Yoko Ono in her home, dressed only in a bathrobe. John and Yoko were very nonchalant about Cynthia finding them together this way. They had become attracted to each other the previous year, and John took advantage of his wife's absence to begin an affair with Ono. Cynthia divorced John, getting custody of their son Julian. After the divorce, Julian saw his father even less, especially after John and Yoko married in 1969. The Beatles' final album, Let It Be, was released in 1970. That same year, the band broke up. John formed a new band with Yoko, the John Lennon Plastic Ono Band. He recorded five solo albums from 1970 to 1975, including Imagine and Mind Games. Some albums were well-received by critics, but later on, some were panned as being too preachy and self-absorbed. In 1971, John and Yoko moved to New York City. Julian didn't see his father again until 1973. At that time, John was separated from Yoko, and at Yoko's urging was having an affair with Mei Pang, a one-time assistant for John and Yoko. Mei Pang and John were together for 18 months, and during that time, she urged John to reconnect with his son, Julian, now 10. They went to Disneyland together and began to have frequent visits. At this time, John began to encourage Julian's musical abilities and gifted him a Les Paul guitar and a drum kit. John and Yoko reunited in 1974, and Yoko became pregnant. Yoko agreed to have the baby if John would be the parent who stayed home and raised the child. John agreed, and their son Sean was born on October 9, 1975, his father's 35th birthday. John Lennon took a break from music and all but disappeared from the public eye after Sean was born. He became the first widely known house husband and spent the first five years of his son's life being his primary caretaker. John loved this role, but it also brought up feelings of guilt at not having been available and present during his firstborn son's life. He realized that he had reenacted his own tragic separation from his father and had been absent from his own son's life, something he'd vowed he'd never do. Except for his brief reconnection with Julian during his time with Mei Pang, he'd been estranged from Julian for over a decade. He was now trying to make amends by being a full-time father to Sean, but Julian would hold anger and resentment for his father even more now. From 1975 to 1980, John was immersed in his role as husband and father. He also spent time reconnecting with his love of creating art through drawing and painting. He began by drawing pictures for his son, and many of his artworks have now been turned into books and sold at private auctions. During this time, Frederick Seaman, John's personal assistant, says he was also preoccupied with violence and death. One of Frederick's uncles had been shot during a traffic dispute in 1978. The bullet had gone right through his body, and he had recovered. Now, whenever John would see him, he would want to hear the story again and ask many questions about his experience, like, what was it like to be shot? What were you thinking about when it happened? And what did it feel like? He especially remembers during a vacation in the summer of 1980 that John would smoke marijuana and begin having more morbid conversations with him. He said he dreamt of getting shot, Frederick remembers. He had nightmares about violent death, weird reoccurring dreams about dying, about getting shot. He talked about getting shot as a modern form of crucifixion, the best way of moving on to the next life with a clean karmic state. John and Yoko had purchased an apartment at the exclusive Dakota Co-op apartment building on the corner of 72nd Street and Central Park West in New York City. The Dakota was built in the 1880s in the German Renaissance style, but many considered it Gothic due to its black iron gates and the gargoyle heads that decorate the top of the building. The Dakota was used in the 1968 film Rosemary's Baby as the residence where the title character, a young housewife played by Mia Farrow, is seduced by the devil and gives birth to the son of Satan. In a strange coincidence, Rosemary's Baby was directed by Roman Polanski, who wed the actress Sharon Tate. Tate and four of her friends were murdered in the summer of 1969 by members of the Manson family on the orders of the cult leader Charles Manson. Charles Manson believed that he received messages through Beatles music. 
most specifically the song Helter Skelter. These messages laid out a plan for him and his followers to gain world domination. His plan was to murder white people and make it look like black people had done it, thereby beginning a race war that would wipe out civilization. Then he and his family, or cult followers, would return from their hiding place in the desert and take over power. After murdering six, two more people, Rosemary and Lino LaBianca, the night after murder at the Polanski Tate home, they would eventually be caught. While Lenin sometimes worried about security, he failed to take even basic precautions from the dangers of being a celebrity. In 1980, John Lennon came out of hiding and released the album Double Fantasy. In October of that year, the first single, Just Like Starting Over, was released and had reached the number six position in the charts. His bodyguard, Doug McDougall, had urged John and Yoko to increase their security detail due to the increased press after the release of the album, but they rejected his advice. John liked the vibe in New York. Even though he was a famous celebrity, he was not often hassled by fans. New Yorkers were known to be casual in the face of celebrity. It was such a small city relative to the number of people who lived there and had so many actors, directors, artists, and other celebrities as residents that most New Yorkers took celebrity sightings in stride. The people who were sometimes camped outside the gates of the Dakota were tourists and Beatle fans from other places who came specifically to catch a glimpse of John Lennon. There were security booths outside of the gates as well, and the security detail watched residents come in and out and kept throngs to a minimum. They watched for any suspicious or threatening behaviors. John felt safe in New York, even taking walks into Central Park, located across the street, with Yoko and Sean. On December 8, 1980, McDougal was on leave of absence, but had a meeting set up with Yoko Ono for the next day to go over his suggestions for the security detail. On that day, John and Yoko had left the Dakota at 5 p.m. to go to the record plant, a recording studio on West 44th Street. They were finishing up a new song to be titled Walking on Thin Ice that would be their next single. When they returned around 11 p.m. and were dropped off by a driver, Yoko walked into the gates of the building first. John, close behind, saw a lone man standing near the security booth at the front of the building. He glanced at him and may have vaguely recognized him. He had interacted with him briefly earlier that day and may have wondered what he was doing in front of the building so late. But being used to seeing fans and tourists in front of the apartment building, he most likely quickly dismissed this thought. But this second encounter would prove fatal. Mark David Chapman was born in 1955 in Fort Worth, Texas, and weighed 12 pounds at birth. His mother, Diane Chapman, was a nurse, and Mark was her first child. His father, David, was an Air Force sergeant, and his mother a nursing student when they met in Texas. After they wed, David had attended Purdue University in Indiana as an engineering student on the GI Bill. The family then moved to Georgia so David could take a job with American Oil. While his father was a workaholic and distant, his mother doted on Mark. They were very attached to each other. Diane was sensitive and very emotional. She was also abused physically by her husband, who had a bad temper and would take his rages out on her. Young Mark would hear his mother being beaten, and often she would then come into his room crying and sleep in her son's bed. He would attempt to comfort her. As a very young boy, he felt responsible to care for his mother emotionally. He grew to hate his father. From the time he was very young, his mother would tell him that he was born to greatness. She always commented on how wonderful he was, how smart and how special. This helped to shore up her son's seemingly fragile ego. Mark was never good socially and had trouble relating to and making friends with other children. He was hypersensitive to any kind of childhood teasing or anything he felt was belittling. He could never get over anything he considered a slight and would hold a grudge forever. As a young boy, his mother gave him a portable record player and he would play the album Meet the Beatles over and over. It was the only rock and roll album he owned at the time. He also had an obsession with the film The Wizard of Oz and would wait in anticipation each year when it was shown on television. He collected posters and other memorabilia from the film. He would later explain that he wished he could go and meet the wizard and then perhaps he could help him find his way home or wherever he belonged, since he never felt like he belonged in this world. At the age of 14, Chapman was still a Beatles fan, but the Beatles had changed from the suit-and-tie-wearing mop-topped band. Their latest album, Magical Mystery Tour, introduced the new Beatles as long-haired hippies, and soon they were seen in the media sporting not only long hair, but beards. 
They were also reported to be into meditation and mind-altering drugs. Chapman wanted to emulate his idols, and so he began to change to a new identity as well. While before he had been a straight-laced nerd-type schoolboy, he now took to growing out his hair, wearing dirty bell-bottom jeans and sandals. He began to hang out with the few hippies at his school and began taking drugs. The first drug he tried was LSD when he was offered it by a neighbor boy. He quickly began regularly using the psychedelic drug, as well as sniffing glue and lighter fluid. He says that this was the first time he felt like he fit in as part of a group, and that in 1969 he went from being a nobody to being a somebody. His parents were alarmed by his behavior and tried to punish him when he began to do poorly in school, but he ignored their threats. He would stay out sometimes all night without his parents knowing where he was. He was only 14 years old. There were two early warnings about Chapman's penchant for violence. Once when he was tripping on LSD with a group of friends, and they had all passed out, with Chapman the only one left awake. Chapman had the urge to get a knife and stab them as they slept, but decided not to. Soon after, he got into a fight with his father and grabbed a knife, but his father was able to overpower him and take the knife away. That summer, when Chapman was still 14, he saved up money and bought a plane ticket to Miami. He was, in effect, running away from home. He only had $30 cash with him and decided he was going to become a beach bum and live like a hippie in Miami. He spent a couple of days hanging around the beach, trying to connect with other youth, but failed until he told a group of older hippies that he had cash and could buy beer. They allowed him to hang out with them and taught him how to shoplift and to panhandle. After he ran out of money, the older boys got tired of hanging out with the baby-faced hippie and felt he would make them more conspicuous to police, so they dumped him. He then began walking and came across a circus. He immediately felt he belonged there. As a boy, he had loved the movie Toby Tyler, about a young boy who runs away from home and joins a circus. He now fancied himself a Toby Tyler-type character. He spent a few days working in food service at the circus. Thus, he was able to eat for free. He watched how the carnival hucksters smoothly lured people into spending money to win worthless items. He admired the smooth con of these hustlers. A few days later, when a long-haired and bearded young man came to pick up some of the cooking equipment, Chapman, pegging him as a hippie and a kindred spirit, hitched a ride back to town with him. The young man turned out to be working for his family in a restaurant equipment business. The family, realizing that he must be a runaway, allowed him to stay with them for a few nights, but urged him to return home. They gave him a bus ticket to return to Georgia. Once home, he was shocked to realize he had only been gone two weeks. He found his mother in bed, severely depressed due to his absence. She couldn't even get out of bed when she saw he had returned. He felt guilty and tried to clean up his act. He started attending a Christian youth group, but continued his drug use, even introducing drugs to some of the other teens in the group. He continued to seek out the hippie lifestyle, and soon after his return home, his wallet was ransacked by a group of older youth he was hanging out with. Shocked and furious at having been robbed, he turned to God. When he began his junior year of high school later that month, he returned as a born-again Christian. Like everything else Chapman tried, he quickly became obsessed with his newfound lifestyle. He began evangelizing to everyone he met, trying to win converts for Christ. He left tracts unasked in lockers at school. He attended prayer groups most evenings. At this time, he also professed his hatred for the Beatles. He especially hated the comment that John Lennon had made in 1966 about the Beatles being, quote, more popular than Jesus. While the quote was made to a British news outlet and received little attention in the UK, it was published in a U.S. teen magazine months later, and a huge backlash ensued. It was especially decried in the southern U.S. states, or what is often called the Bible Belt, with some teens protesting by destroying Beatles records and other memorabilia at public rallies. Chapman also labeled Lennon's song Imagine a communist song because in it he sang, Imagine no possessions and no religion too. He had substituted his idolization of John Lennon and the Beatles for Todd Rundgren, and now listened to his music nonstop and would for many years. Todd Rundgren and John Lennon were also known to viciously criticize each other's music. Chapman would also pester everyone he knew to listen to Todd Rundgren music, telling them that he was the best musician that ever lived. He became a fixture at Christian youth group meetings in his town. He wanted to be considered a youth leader as well, but Chapman was still hypersensitive to any perceived slights, 
and also considered himself to be all talented and gifted in everything he did, as his mother had raised him to believe. He started singing and playing guitar at some meetings with the group. He wrote a song and wanted to perform it in the group meetings. The group was not interested and denied him the opportunity. He soon fell out with the group and stopped attending and no longer evangelized. He did still, however, consider himself a Christian. During his Christian youth group phase, Chapman had also begun volunteering at the Young Men's Christian Association, or the YMCA. The YMCA was founded as a religious organization that worked on the whole person, mind, body, and spirit, and was originally focused on males. Its programs included athletic facilities, after-school activities, summer camps, leadership training, and provided youth hostels where young people could find a safe and inexpensive place to stay around the world. Chapman began as a volunteer, but soon applied to work as a camp counselor. Like his previous interests, the Beatles, hippie culture, drugs, and Christianity, Chapman now immersed himself in his work at the Y. The director was impressed by his dedication and his rapport with the children. He became a favorite of the children, always there to help with whatever they needed and allowing them unlimited access to his attention. He loved his new identity as the kid's hero, and having recently read the novel The Catcher in the Rye, he identified with Holden Caulfield's stated need to be a savior to children. The children responded, and Chapman was soon a favorite counselor and was dubbed Captain Nemo by them. He was even given an award as Camp Counselor of the Year. Those were the greatest days of my life, Chapman later said. I was Nemo, and everyone in the camp loved me. Chapman was able to make up for his earlier school failures and graduated high school six months early. He decided to move to Chicago with another friend, Michael McFarland. He had been dating his very first girlfriend, Lynn Watson, but now left her to work at the Chicago Youth for Christ organization. Chapman and McFarland began performing original musical and comedy skits at churches and religious conventions. Chapman's goal was now to become known as a performer and ultimately to appear on The Tonight Show. When his dream wasn't realized after only a few months of working in the Youth for Christ mailroom during the days and performing for Christian audiences in the evenings, Chapman threw in the towel and returned to Georgia. He tried to rekindle his romance with Lynn, but she had moved on and was not interested in dating him again. He returned to work at the YMCA at a series of seasonal jobs. He stayed for a while with his friends Miles McManus, and his friend remembers Chapman spending his evenings playing guitar listening to Todd Rundgren music, and talking incessantly about the musician. He also urged his friend and his family members to read Catcher in the Rye. He connected with a girl he had known in grade school named Jessica Blankenship. They began dating and soon became engaged. Chapman was accepted in the YMCA international program that would take him and other volunteers to work for the organization in other countries. His first assignment was to Beirut, Lebanon, but the timing could not have been worse as soon after arriving, the country broke out in a civil war. While the YMCA volunteers were some of the first people evacuated, Chapman returned home badly shaken from having been in a war zone. He was then offered a job working at the YMCA-run resettlement camp at Fort Chafee, Arkansas. It had been hastily set up for the thousands of Vietnamese refugees who had escaped their own war-torn country. Chapman became the area coordinator for the camp. He traveled with the director to meetings with officials and was on the welcoming committee when President Gerald Ford toured the camp. Jessica came to visit Chapman at the camp, and he pulled out all the stops to impress her, reserving her room at the Sheraton, where the hotel's marquee read out her name in large letters. They spent the time making wedding plans. They also planned for Chapman to join her at Covenant College in Tennessee after the camp closed. What he didn't tell her, however, was that he had lost his virginity a few weeks before to another camp employee. Ironically, they had lived platonically for several months as roommates before they ended up sleeping together one night. Chapman felt guilty, but continued to have sex with her anyway. Chapman was 20 years old, and this was his first sexual experience. He didn't even know about sex at all until he was 13 years old, when another boy explained it to him. His mother and father had slept in separate bedrooms for years, so apparently it had never come up and his parents had neglected to explain the facts of life to him. Then, as an evangelical Christian teen, he learned it was wrong to have sex or even have sexual thoughts towards someone you were not married to. The refugee camp closed in December 1975, and Chapman enrolled as a full-time student at Covenant College. Soon, he found he couldn't keep up with the other students and started getting behind in his classes. 
He felt inferior and became depressed. He soon dropped out. He left college and his fiancée, calling off the engagement. He got a job as a security guard. He felt his life had now come to nothing. I used to be Captain Nemo, he said later. Now I was Captain Nobody. I was just like everybody else, he thought, which was the worst thing that could happen in his mind. He got an idea in his head that he wanted to go to Hawaii, specifically so he could end his life there. He made a plan to have a last fling in paradise, as he put it. He saved his money for several months before flying to the islands. Jack Jones, author of the book, Let Me Take You Down, Inside the Mind of Mark David Chapman, writes, Between the time he had finished high school in 1973 and entered Covenant College in 1976, Chapman had traveled to the Middle East as an international YMCA emissary and shaken the hand of an American president. He had been praised and decorated for his work with underprivileged children in Georgia and with refugees from the Vietnam War. He had survived a civil war that had erupted around him on the streets of Beirut, Lebanon. He had been somebody. Suddenly, he was nobody. Mark David Chapman decided that being a nobody was worse than being dead. It was worse than spending the rest of his life in prison. I would add that he had done all of those things, but whenever anything required too much effort, like attending college and working hard like every other ordinary student, or sticking it out and facing many rejections before possibly becoming a successful performer, he gave up. If he received any criticism or a perceived slight, like when he wasn't recognized for his songwriting talents in the church group, Mark David Chapman would quit. If he wasn't instantly praised, or if he didn't immediately succeed at whatever he tried, he threw in the towel. As he had been led to believe all of his life, he was special, and if that was not recognized, he became angry and frustrated and gave up. Now he was giving up on life, but true to his inflated sense of self, he had to do it in grand style. He had to do it in paradise, and he also had to, first, spend several days indulging in the finer things in life. He had researched the islands and looked into what were considered the best hotels. He checked himself into the Moana Hotel on Waikiki Beach. He requested a room on the top floor, where he would have the best ocean views. He ate expensive meals and ordered room service drinks. He walked on Waikiki Beach during the day, enjoying the beautiful sun and surf. After five days, Chapman was running out of money, but having experienced the good life, was now not so sure he wanted to die. He moved into a cheap room at the Honolulu YMCA and called his former fiancée Jessica, telling her he had come to Hawaii to kill himself. But, he told her, he still loved her and needed her to take him back. Only then would he have a reason to live. Jessica was afraid and told him to please come home and they'd work everything out. He flew home to reconcile with Jessica, but once he returned, she quickly told him she was glad he hadn't killed himself, but she just wanted to be friends. He tried to stay with his parents for a few days, but their arguments quickly got out of hand. He took $1,200 he still had saved and decided to return to Hawaii to live. In May 1977, Chapman was back in Hawaii. He could only land menial low-paying jobs. After two months and little money or prospects left, he decided to commit suicide. He rented a car and drove out to the beach. He'd bought a plastic hose and attached it to the tailpipe inserting the other end into the car and rolled up the windows, planning to kill himself by carbon monoxide poisoning. He woke up later, thinking he might be dead, but soon realizing that he was not. He went to the back of the car and saw that the hose had melted and thwarted his plan. Believing that this was a sign from God that he should not kill himself, he went to a mental health clinic and told them of his suicide attempt. They admitted him to a nearby psychiatric hospital on June 21, 1977. He was diagnosed as not psychotic, but severely depressed. Two weeks later, he was discharged. The doctors said he'd made a remarkable recovery, now seeming to be in a positive mental state, even cheerful. In several notes, however, his doctors had expressed concern about sexual and other unspecified fantasies Chapman had reported. In one note, the doctor wrote that Chapman said if he was in prison, he could rest and read, the same way he had at the hospital. Even so, he had charmed many of the hospital staff and other patients while in treatment, so much so that they allowed him at first to volunteer at the hospital after his release and then hired him to work in the housekeeping and maintenance department. Even though the job didn't pay much, Chapman now felt important again and thrived in his new job. He was even invited to dine with the hospital director on occasion. 
Chapman had a way of being able to ingratiate himself into situations by learning what other people wanted to see and hear from him. Having very little in the way of his own personality, he took on the personalities of others and soaked in his environment in order to be accepted. At the hospital, he soon learned the psychological and medical jargon the staff used and parroted it back expertly. He knew he could make them feel good by showing a remarkable recovery from their treatment. He even learned some Japanese in order to communicate with Japanese patients. He was like a sponge that would immerse himself and play a role in order to fit in and receive kudos and attention, whether that was as an evangelical Christian who would recite scripture, as a hippie who would speak in hippie slang, or as a hospital staff member who could speak in medical terms, he would find a way to fit in. But it also seemed that once he felt he had achieved something and was accepted and praised, he needed a new challenge or wanted a deserved reward. This time he felt that he should take a trip to the Far East. It had always been a dream of his to travel the globe. He quickly upgraded to a trip around the world once he discovered that he could borrow money from the hospital credit union and also that he could take a six-week leave of absence from his job. He began working with a travel agent, a Japanese-American woman named Gloria Abe. Gloria was five years older than him, 27 years to his 22, but she looked far younger. He would stop into her travel agency several times a week, constantly changing his travel itinerary. He would bring her coffee and pastries and thank you notes. She developed a crush on him. He thought she was cute, but never one to aggressively pursue relationships, sexual or not. It wasn't until Gloria made the first move that he considered her romantically. The day he was to leave on his six-week trip, she showed up with a flower lay for him to wear as a send-off and also kissed him. He promised to write every day while he was gone. Later, he would admit that part of his attraction to Gloria was the fact that she was of Japanese descent, as was John Lennon's wife, Yoko. He left on July 6th and traveled to Tokyo, Korea, China, and Thailand. In Thailand, he was approached by a prostitute and paid her for sex. He felt it was a sign that the prostitute was wearing a green dress, as he recalled that in The Catcher in the Rye, the prostitute Holden Caulfield had an encounter with was also wearing a green dress. I felt it was something Holden Caulfield would do, he later said, even though he wasn't that attracted to the prostitute. Of course, he didn't mention it to Gloria. He then continued on to India, Iran, Israel, and Switzerland before ending his trip in England. He returned to Hawaii on August 20th. When he returned, he began seeing Gloria seriously. They became engaged and married the following year in June. His mother had finally divorced his father and now decided to move to Hawaii to be near her son. Gloria, a newlywed, naturally wanted to spend time alone with her husband. But her new mother-in-law seemed to be around constantly, inviting herself out to dinner with them and over to their apartment most evenings. Gloria felt it was too much, but Chapman told her his first duty was to his mother. He had become enraged when his mother confided to him about the divorce. He felt she had been cheated out of money and other property and took her to seek a lawyer and fight for more of the marital assets. He was now fully responsible for caring for his 48-year-old mother's emotional and companionship needs. His temper began to flare more often. After marrying Gloria, he took a better-paying job at the hospital, working in the print department and also helping with public relations. At first, he enjoyed the job, as he got to meet local dignitaries as part of the PR duties. But he soon became overwhelmed by the demanding job. He began to argue with coworkers and react angrily to assignments requested by his employers. They no longer trusted him to be in the public eye, and he was let go. He got a job as an overnight security guard at a luxury hotel. He was isolated and drinking more, but his job afforded him the ability to learn what to look for when pegging a person as suspicious or in need of questioning. He would learn what would be considered normal behavior and what would cause security to recognize a person and question them more. This skill would come into play in his future plans. Gloria saw the changes in her husband and was even a victim of his violent outbursts. Often when he would fly into a rage, he would either destroy or toss out Gloria's possessions. He never destroyed his own, but one day she realized that the only thing she had left that she had brought into the marriage was her stereo. Chapman had finally destroyed this when he couldn't fix a minor problem he was having with the record player. She watched in horror as he took a hammer to it and smashed it to pieces. He purchased the new stereo soon after so he could continue to listen to his Todd Rundgren albums. 
He was drunk many days now and was gaining a lot of weight eating fast food. She didn't know that he would even drink at work. Buying tall cans of beer and keeping them in paper bags to drink when he was on duty alone or on his way home. He had insisted that they move to a high-rise luxury condominium. He still felt he should be living an opulent lifestyle, even though he couldn't afford it. He also started investing in artwork, borrowing money from his father-in-law and his mother to purchase pieces. He got conned into spending $5,000 on a Salvador Dali print that was worth much less. He then borrowed more money and purchased a Norman Rockwell print. He was doing all of this on a security guard's and a travel agent's salary, and the stress of being in debt was getting to him. He started lashing out at neighbors, co-workers, and even Gloria's boss. She ended up leaving her place of employment for another company because of her husband's embarrassing behavior. In 1980, Chapman checked a book out of the Honolulu Library. The book, John Lennon, One Day at a Time, by Anthony Fawcett, detailed Lennon's time in New York and prominently featured pictures of John and Yoko at the beautiful Dakota building where they lived. It was obvious that they were living a very comfortable lifestyle in beautiful surroundings. Lennon had been rewarded in money and possessions for his talents and successes. Seeing these pictures infuriated Chapman. He immediately seized upon the idea that John Lennon was, in the words of Holden Caulfield, a phony. Gloria would later say that he was angry that Lennon would preach love and peace, but yet have millions of dollars. Chapman was incensed that John Lennon was living the lifestyle with all the perks that he believed he should have. He only had a nothing job, a lot of debt, and was of no importance. He was also angered that the book described how John had become a house husband, no longer working, but staying home to raise his child. Chapman now decided to quit his job and stay home as well. On his last day of work, he signed out as John Lennon. He spent the time figuring out how to get out of debt. Gloria was alarmed that he would spend most of the day sitting at the kitchen table with tablets full of figures muttering to himself. He was unkempt and looked very unhealthy. It was at this time that he told Gloria about the little people. He explained that there was a whole world that lived inside his mind since he was a child. Mark had made up this world so he could feel a sense of power and control. The little people looked up to him as a leader and almost godlike. He would alternately use them as a sounding board, an advisory committee, and when he was angry, he would turn on the little people and wipe them out violently in his mind. But they always came back to do his bidding or give him praise. Now they had returned, he told her, in order to help him reorganize his life. As he was going through their finances, he would present his proposals to the little people as a committee to either approve or reject his decisions. Gloria was afraid to comment. If it kept her husband from flying into violent rages, she was okay with him having a make-believe world in his mind. Now Mark David Chapman was, in essence, completely isolated from real life and living in an imaginary world in his mind. He also remained angry, increasingly so, at John Lennon and all the phonies of the world, but John Lennon was the worst one of all. Of course there was jealousy, he would later say. There was envy. But there was more than that. I remember thinking that there was a successful man who had the world on a chain. And there I was, not even a link of that chain. Just a person who had no personality. I was thinking all these things, looking at the pictures of him in the book, smiling on the roof of the sumptuous Dakota building. The decadent bastard, the phony bastard. He told us to imagine no possessions. And there he was, with millions of dollars and yachts and farms and country estates laughing at people like me who believed the lies and bought the records and built a big part of their lives around his music. It was then that he decided he would kill John Lennon. On October 23, 1980, the same day that Mark David Chapman quit his job, signing out as John Lennon, the real John Lennon released his first single in over five years. The title of the song was, appropriately, Just Like Starting Over. It was the first single released from the album titled Double Fantasy, scheduled to come out in November. On October 27th, Chapman purchased a 38 Smith & Wesson handgun at a Honolulu gun shop for $169. He then walked over to the police station and filled out a gun permit. He checked no to the question, have you ever been hospitalized for a mental illness? Her husband had lately seemed in a better mood, so when he told her he was taking a trip alone to New York City, Gloria didn't ask questions. He had previously borrowed $5,000 from his father-in-law to purchase the Norman Rockwell print 
and then had sold it at a profit. Instead of paying his father-in-law back, he had kept the money to finance his trip. He had, of course, decided to travel in style. He had first purchased a new suit and coat, as well as booked a two-night stay at the Waldorf Astoria in Manhattan. He boarded the plane for the flight to New York on October 29th. He had put the gun in his checked-in luggage. He had learned that it was illegal to bring a handgun into New York City, even with a permit. In order to avoid a problem, he did not bring any bullets with him, because, he thought, if he was caught with the gun, it was less likely he would be arrested if it was not loaded. He figured he could purchase ammunition once he was there. He checked into a small room at the Waldorf, treating himself to room service before heading out to look for Lennon. He went to the Dakota each day and talked with security guards there, telling them he was a fan of the Beatles who had traveled from Hawaii and hoped to catch a glimpse of John Lennon. They, as instructed, did not give any information about the residents and would only tell him that Lennon was probably away and might be traveling. Chapman was angry, but from his training as a security guard, he knew that he needed to remain pleasant and behave normally, not causing any undue attention to himself. Meanwhile, he called a gun dealer in the city and asked about purchasing ammunition for a thirty-eight. The gun dealer laughed at him, saying, You're not from around here, are you? You're not going to find thirty-eight caliber bullets in New York City unless you're licensed and bonded. Chapman was very angry and running out of patience now. He was also realizing that it would take longer for him to find and kill Lennon than he had thought, and he had already spent a lot of money. He treated himself to steak dinners and front row tickets to Broadway plays, and twice he had treated women he had met at tourist attractions to a show, dinner, and expensive carriage rides to Central Park. Both times they simply thanked him at the end of these dates without giving him their address or phone numbers. He left his room at the Waldorf and checked into first the Sheraton Hotel in Midtown, and then the cheaper Olcott Hotel that was located a half block away from the Dakota. Once he realized he could not purchase ammunition in New York, he thought of his old friend Dana Reeves in Georgia, who was now a sheriff's deputy. Chapman thought maybe he could help him out, so he purchased a first-class airline ticket to Atlanta to call on his buddy. He flew to Atlanta on November 5th. He reunited with his friend Dana and stayed with him and his family. He also called on his former English teacher and was disappointed and upset when she was not more excited to see him. He also called his first girlfriend, Lynn. He expected her to be thrilled to see him and badgered her into meeting him. Along with his friend Dana, they planned to meet the next day. He pulled out his old standby romantic move and brought along roses and a teddy bear. They waited for an hour for her to show, but she never did. Furious, he threw the gifts in a ditch. He then asked his buddy to take him target shooting. He did, bringing along two guns. One was a thirty-eight. They shot targets for over an hour, and Chapman's aim had improved once they were done. He told his friend that he had brought a thirty-eight for protection, since New York City was considered a dangerous place. But, he told him, he could not purchase ammunition, and asked him to help him out and give him a few bullets. Dana at first gave him some standard bullets, but Chapman held out for hollow points, saying that he wanted the bullets that would do the most damage, just in case he got into trouble. Dana gave him five hollow-point bullets. He flew back to New York on Sunday, November 9th. Having burned through more money on first-class airline tickets to Georgia, Chapman checked into the YMCA on his return. He now had the bullets he needed, but he still could not make contact with Lennon. The doormen were now saying he might be out of the country. Chapman was growing more depressed, but continued to walk around New York for a few days. He finally called his wife on Tuesday, November 11th. He talked in circles about a gun and a planned murder, asking her, You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Gloria said she did not, but urged him to please just come home. He then told her that he had bought a gun in Hawaii and had brought it to New York to kill John Lennon. He told her she probably didn't believe him, but it was true. She told him she did believe him and began to cry and told him to please, please come home. He said that he hadn't done it because, quote, your love has saved me. He returned to Hawaii on Thursday, November 12th. Chapman planned a romantic reunion with his wife, returning to play out a dramatized love story, how he had been bent on destruction, but love had saved him in the end. When he walked into the door of their apartment, he swept her into his arms. Soon after, he showed her the gun and the bullets and kept repeating, You probably don't believe me, but I could have done it. (music) 
Rather than feeling victorious, as he told his wife when he returned home, Chapman felt once again ordinary. He had not completed his mission, he was not somebody, and he had come back to the usual life stressors and problems. He was a married man with obligations to be a good husband, provide for himself and his wife, and contribute to society. He also was now responsible for his mother, who seemed to depend on him more and more. After her divorce and moved to Hawaii, she seemed to enter into a second adolescence, hanging out on the beach and dating younger men. She relied on her son to help her with day-to-day demands, like paying the bills and dealing with attorneys in her divorce settlement. Chapman began to unravel again, and Gloria's suggestion was that they attend church regularly and that they should rely on God for strength and help. Even after his confession to her on his return home from New York about his plan to murder John Lennon, she did not contact authorities or seek mental help for her husband. She believed prayer and faith in God could solve all their problems. But he was just play-acting at being a Christian with his wife, now not even sure he believed in God. Most frequently, his thought was in order to ever matter, in order to ever be somebody, he had to complete his mission to kill John Lennon. He had the gun, he had the bullets, and now he knew what he needed to do. Giving his wife the lame excuse about wanting to go to New York to work on a children's book, one month later, he flew once again to New York, landing on Saturday, December 6th. Arriving in New York, he took a room at the YMCA about nine blocks from the Dakota. He then went straight there and took up a post outside of the building. There were other fans there too on that Saturday, hoping to catch a glimpse of the ex-Beatle. Chapman struck up a conversation with them, introducing himself as a Beatle fan from Hawaii. They asked him if he'd brought something for John to sign, assuming he was there, like them, for an autograph. He said no, and they advised him to buy the new album, Double Fantasy, for him to sign. He thought that that was a great idea and walked a couple of blocks away to a Columbus Avenue record store and purchased it. He came back and waited again for Lennon to appear, but finally gave up at 5 p.m. and headed back to the Y. John Lennon arrived in a cab about a half an hour later. Chapman had just missed him. On Sunday morning, the 7th of December, Chapman checked out of the Y into the Sheraton Hotel on 7th and 52nd Street. By 9.30 a.m., he was back at the Dakota. He had worn comfortable shoes as he'd planned to stay in front of the building for as long as it took. He left at noon to get some lunch, on the way back stopping at a bookstore. He purchased a Playboy magazine that featured an interview with John Lennon. He decided to walk back to the Sheraton to have lunch in the hotel restaurant. There, he read the interview in the Playboy magazine and perused the centerfold pictures as well. He then headed up to his room and, looking through the yellow pages, called an escort service and asked for a girl to come up to his room. Once she arrived, he explained that he wasn't that interested in having sex, but began to talk to her about his life and accomplishments, his feelings and his philosophy of life. He then said he wanted them to mutually masturbate each other. When it was done, he paid her $190 and she left. He then called Hawaii and spoke to his wife for a few minutes before turning in. The following day was Monday, December 8th. Chapman got ready to leave his hotel at 8 a.m. Before he left, he laid out several items in his room. His passport, his Bible, open to the book of John, which in parentheses he had added, Lennon, a small Wizard of Oz poster, and a picture of himself with a group of Vietnamese children at Fort Chafee. Before leaving, he loaded the gun with the five hollow-point bullets. He walked the 1.2 miles to the Dakota building. On the way, he stopped at a bookstore and purchased a copy of The Catcher in the Rye. He had given his copy to Gloria, telling her it was important for her to read it so she would understand him better. He arrived at the Dakota at 9.30 a.m. He said hello to the security guards on duty, saying, Remember me, the fan from Hawaii? At about 10.30 a.m., Lennon exited the building and into a waiting car. But Chapman, engrossed once again in the catcher in the rye, missed him. Another person who was standing outside the building that day was a fixture at the Dakota. Freelance photographer Paul Goresh was often there trying to get photos of John and Yoko. He was somewhat of a pain, according to security, because he was constantly trying to talk with them and get information. Sometimes they chose just to ignore him. Today, he and Chapman struck up a conversation. Chapman had seemed pleasant enough. He had given him his usual spiel about being a Beatles fan, telling him this was his second trip to New York. Goresh asked him in passing where he was staying. At this question, Chapman snapped, yelling at him, Why the hell did you ask me that question? What do you want to know that for? 
Easy, Goresh replied. I was just making conversation. You're the one who started the conversation in the first place. Annoyed, Goresh walked away from him, muttering, Big dope. Chapman invited one of the other fans, a woman named Judy Harvey, to eat lunch with him across the street. She accepted. They ate lunch by a window with a view of the front of the Dakota. They talked about general things. Chapman told her about his life in Hawaii and his travels around the world. After lunch, they returned to once again stand on the sidewalk in front of the Dakota. About an hour later, Judy pointed at a woman holding the hand of a small, dark-haired child who were walking through the gates toward the street. The woman was Helen Seaman, the boy's nanny, and the boy was Sean Lennon. Judy introduced Chapman to Helen. They had interacted often, and Helen was always friendly to her. Kneeling down in front of Sean, Chapman shook his small hand. The boy and his nanny then got into a car and drove away. Judy left soon after. John continued his vigil, and at about 5 p.m., his patience was rewarded. All of a sudden, there was a flurry of activity as a group of people walked out of the gates and began getting into a waiting limo. Right behind them, John and Yoko emerged and asked the security guard to hail them a taxi. The group, seeing John and Yoko waiting, invited them to share their limo, and they accepted. Hey, Goresh nudged Chapman, who stood frozen to the sidewalk. Now's your chance. Didn't you want him to sign your album? Wordlessly, just seconds before Lennon would have disappeared into the limo, Chapman held out the album towards him. Smiling, Lennon took the album and the pen from his hands and signed John Lennon, December 1980. Handing it back to a still-mute Chapman, Lennon asked, Is that all you want? Chapman was now able to squeak out, Thank you, before Lennon turned away. After he left, Chapman began to gush to the photographer, showing him the signed album, and saying he couldn't believe he had just met John Lennon. Remembering that the photographer had been taking pictures, he got excited and asked if he had taken any of him with Lennon. I think so, he replied. Chapman said he wanted to get his information to make sure he could get a copy of the picture for himself. Goresh promised to get one to him. John and Yoko were on their way that evening to the record plant, a recording studio on West 44th Street. They were putting the final touches on their new single titled Walking on Thin Ice. At about 8 p.m., the photographer told Chapman he was packing it in for the day. When Lennon hadn't returned by then, he realized he must have gone to the recording studio, and he knew that he sometimes worked late into the night. Chapman begged him to stay, saying, I know he'll be back soon. I can feel it. He kept talking, desperate now to have him stay. He also tried to convince him, saying, what if you don't see him again? Chapman would later say that if Goresh had stayed, he probably wouldn't have shot Lennon that night. But he also said he probably would have still done it another time. Goresh cut him off, saying, you should turn in and get some rest. You got the autograph. Isn't that enough? What he couldn't know was that nothing was ever enough for Chapman. Chapman told him he would stay because he still wanted to get Yoko's autograph. Now he was alone in front of the building, save for the security personnel in the small guard booth on the other side of the gate. He was still clutching the now autographed album, and he kept his other hand in the pocket that held the gun. He had also put the copy of The Catcher in the Rye in the other coat pocket. Inside the book's flyleaf, he had taken the same pen Lennon had signed with and inscribed, This is my statement, and signed it, Holden Caulfield, The Catcher in the Rye. He planned to lay down beside the dead or dying John Lennon with the book in his hand. He envisioned Lennon's blood seeping into his own body. Then he believed he would become Holden Caulfield. A little before 11 p.m., a car arrived, and Yoko Ono, followed by John Lennon, exited the vehicle. Yoko passed through the gates first. John, glancing at Chapman, was a few steps behind. When he'd passed Chapman and had his back to him, Chapman withdrew the gun from his pocket. He pulled the trigger five times, hitting Lennon four times in the back and shoulder. Yoko, hearing the shots right behind her, ducked and ran around the wall into the courtyard. Chapman was surprised that Lennon didn't fall directly in front of him. Instead, he was able to propel himself across the courtyard, up six stone steps and into the lobby near the concierge desk before he fell. Chapman stood still with the gun in his hand. The security guard ran up to him shouting, Do you know what you've done? and shook the gun out of his hand, then kicked it across the courtyard. Chapman walked back out towards the street and took the book from his pocket. He then took off his cap and coat so people could see he was no longer armed. He did not want to be shot. He opened the book and tried to read, but found the words swimming all over the page. Nevertheless, he kept looking at the book, pacing up and down in front of the building. 
When police arrived, he raised his hands in the air. Don't hurt me, I'm unarmed, he called out. I acted alone, I'm the only one, he explained as they came to cuff him and put him in the squad car. The distraught security guard had pointed him out to the officers. As he was being placed in the squad car, he cried out, My book! My book! He had dropped the red-covered book on the pavement when he'd been cuffed. An officer picked up the book and placed it in a plastic evidence bag. Once in the vehicle, he said to one officer, I'm sorry I gave you guys all this trouble. Sitting in the car, he watched as crowds began to form in front of the Dakota. Officers were trying to keep the people away from the crime scene and the police car holding the shooter. All of a sudden, Chapman drew back, startled. The face of Yoko Ono had appeared in the police car window inches from him. Having been pointed to where the shooter sat in the car, she'd rushed over, wanting, needing to have a look at the man who had just shot her husband, her best friend, her soulmate. She was a mask of pain. Please, just go away, he squeaked out. Chapman looked down, avoiding her eyes, and the officers led her away from the vehicle. He watched as the officers carried Lennon's body and placed him in a vehicle to transport him as quickly as possible to the hospital. But it was too late. John Lennon was pronounced dead on arrival at 11.07 p.m. at Roosevelt General Hospital. Two hours later, Mark David Chapman signed a confession to the murder of John Lennon. In it, he stated he had nothing against Lennon. Later, he would say that he didn't want to tell the police that Lennon was a phony. He could tell that they were fans and was afraid they would be angry with him and mistreat him. An hour after the shooting, a reporter in Hawaii had already heard the news and called Gloria. Gloria then called the police precinct in New York and asked to speak with her husband. The call was recorded. Chapman's main concern was that Gloria not speak with the press. He did not want them hounding her. She was confused and said that no one was calling, save one solo reporter who asked for a statement. He kept insisting that they would be hassling her soon, and he wanted her to call a lawyer to keep the press away. Chapman was already anticipating that his life would be of great interest to the press now that he was famous as John Lennon's murderer. Crowds were beginning to form outside of the police station and in front of the Dakota, beginning vigils for John Lennon and calling for the head of Mark David Chapman. Police decided they needed to hide him for his protection and took him to the basement of the police station, where he sat in silence with a couple of officers for several hours. Early the next morning, he was taken to Bellevue Hospital for his safety and also for an interview with a psychiatrist. Press was now calling him the most unpopular man in the world. He spoke openly to the psychiatrist about the several literary and Hollywood fantasies that he'd been obsessed with from his youngest days. He used these fantasies to extract meaning about his life and about life in general. Like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, he explained, he wanted to find his way home. He felt he was in a strange place he didn't understand, a place that didn't make sense. He was also very drawn to the theme of good versus evil. He tried to be good, but got nowhere, so the evil part of him took over. He couldn't gain recognition as a hero, so he had become an anti-hero. The psychiatrist reported him to be elusive in his answers and pegged him as a very unique case. He'd asked her why he had murdered his childhood idol. She said he clearly understood the consequences of his actions, but he simply didn't care how it would affect anyone but himself. She recommended that he be charged with second-degree murder. On December 9th, he was wrapped in two bulletproof vests for the short trip to the Manhattan courthouse and his arraignment. He was charged with second-degree murder. Mark David Chapman's murder trial was set to begin in the summer of 1981. He'd had several psychiatric evaluations done with varied results. Dr. Daniel Schwartz questioned him about the little people who lived in his mind. He concluded that he was schizophrenic, with the added diagnosis of narcissistic personality disorder. But he also reported that he understood the nature of his crime and the consequences of his actions and was competent to stand trial. Dr. Bloom concluded after his interview that Chapman suffered from delusions of grandiosity, and he believed that he was psychologically incapable of controlling his actions that night. He believed his psychosis began as a child, possibly due to stress in the home and the abuse of his mother he had witnessed. He believed his psychosis was then exacerbated by his heavy psychedelic drug use as a teen. But on June 22, 1981, Chapman was before the court having decided to plead guilty to second-degree murder. 
I had the chance to turn it around, he said, and I didn't do it. I made a cognizant, rational, intelligent decision to murder a man. I just felt like a big nobody, and that was so attractive to me to go out and do this horrible act that would make me somebody. On August 22nd, he was sentenced to 20 years to life. Gloria Chapman, who had known of her husband's preparations for killing Lennon, but took no action, was not charged. Chapman later said that he harbored a deep-seated resentment towards his wife, that she didn't go to somebody, even the police, and say, look, my husband's bought a gun and he says he's going to kill John Lennon. After sentencing, Chapman was to be moved to Attica State Prison. Hearing that he was being transferred to the prison where, in 1971, 43 prisoners had died after the bloodiest prison riot in U.S. history, Chapman panicked. He curled himself into a fetal position and refused to come out of his cell. A prison chaplain was called to speak to him, and only after he was guaranteed to be placed in protective custody did he give in. He was to be housed away from the general population for his own safety, as he was considered a notorious prisoner. Gloria moved to upstate New York to be near her husband and visited him almost every day, even though when he was still at Rikers Island, he had written to her saying goodbye and vowing to never see or speak to her again. Gloria continued to urge Chapman to pray, now believing he had been possessed by demonic beings. Instead, Chapman refused to eat, going on a hunger strike for 30 days and calling out to Satan. He was sent to the prison psych ward and force-fed by IV. Afterwards, he recommitted himself to Christianity and to Gloria. Eighteen months later, he began to rebel and act out, refusing to see Gloria again. After Gloria was threatened by an ex-con, she decided to move back to Hawaii for her own safety. She is still married to Chapman, who is now 61. They are allowed one conjugal visit per year on the prison campus. His mother, Diane, only visited him twice at Attica State Prison. She died in 2004. Mark David Chapman was incarcerated at Attica until 2012. He was then moved to Wendy Correctional Facility, where he is still housed. As a result of his 20 years to life sentence, Chapman became eligible for parole in 2000. He is entitled to a hearing every two years. So far, he has had nine parole hearings, and each time he has been denied. Some of the reasons for the denial include that his release would, quote, deprecate the seriousness of the crime and serve to undermine respect for the law, and that Chapman's granting of media interviews represented a continued interest in maintaining his notoriety. In 2010, in advance of Chapman's scheduled sixth parole hearing, Ono said that she would again oppose parole for Chapman, stating that her safety, that of John's sons, and Chapman's would be at risk. She added, I'm afraid it will bring back the nightmare, the chaos and confusion of that night once again. Chapman's ninth parole application was denied on August 28, 2016, at which Chapman said he now saw his crime as being premeditated, selfish, and evil. His next parole hearing is scheduled for August 2018. Yoko Ono has continued her philanthropic work for peace and the arts. She also raised funds for disaster relief in the Philippines and Japan. She currently speaks out against fracking. She still lives in the same apartment in the Dakota. She has never remarried. Sean Lennon, who was born on his father's 35th birthday, is now 41 years old. He is a musician, singer, and actor. Growing up, he attended boarding schools in Switzerland from the ages of 11 to 15. He is also a social activist and, like his mother, speaks out against fracking. He was frequently seen at the New York Occupy Wall Street protests. Julian Lennon is now 53 years old. He is a musician and photographer. He is close with his half-brother, Sean. He became interested in photography after taking photos during Sean's music tour in 2007. He was excluded from his father's will, although a trust fund was supposed to be shared between Sean and Julian. He sued John Lennon's estate, and a settlement was reached in 1996. It was rumored to be in the amount of $20 million, although some dispute this. He has been engaged twice, once to actress Olivia Diabo, but both times the engagements were called off, and he has never married. He lives in Monaco. Julian's mother, Cynthia, died on April 1, 2015. Every December 8th and October 9th, John Lennon fans converge in front of the Dakota, and since 1985 at Strawberry Fields, a two-and-a-half-acre section of Central Park located directly across the street from the Dakota. Strawberry Fields, the name taken from the Beatles song written by Lennon, 
was dedicated on October 9, 1985, on what would have been John Lennon's 45th birthday. It was dedicated by Mayor Ed Koch and Yoko Ono. The focal point of the Memorial Park is a large circular mosaic of inlaid stones. In the center, it simply reads, Imagine. Bands come to place flowers, drawings, and letters to honor Lennon, and it is fully encompassed with flowers and surrounded by fans on the two anniversary dates, making sure that John Lennon and his enduring legacy is never forgotten. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Follow the show on Twitter at Upon a Crime and on Facebook and Instagram at Once Upon a Crime Pod. Until next time, be good to one another. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.